You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. With the diagnosis of autism, the dream dies, wrote the parent of an autistic child. How does a family adjust to the diagnosis, and is there another chance to live at the end of the tunnel? To learn more, please join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Bauman. Dr. Bauman is an Associate Clinical Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School, Adjunct Associate Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology at Boston University School of Medicine, and Clinical Professor of Pediatrics, University of California at Irvine. She is the director of several organizations committed to research and understanding of autism and is internationally known in this field. Her research interests include the study of the microscopic brain structure and autism, Rett syndrome, and other disorders of neurological development. She is co-editor of the book, The Neurobiology of Autism. Today, we are discussing autism and the autism spectrum disorders. Hi, Dr. Bauman. Hi, how are you? Could I ask you how you chose this field? It was an accident, actually. This was not my area of interest, and I remember even as a medical student and resident thinking, this is just simply too complicated. I don't know how you even think about these kids. I, I just couldn't even envision working with kids on the autism spectrum. They were just behaviorally, they were a mess, and I just couldn't get it. What happened was that I had done some work with my research colleague now of 20 years, Dr. Tom Kemper, who was an adult neurologist and was working on neuroanatomy, and I had done a one-month fellowship with him during my residency period. And in the 80s, I guess we'd written a paper on phenylketonuria, looking at brain samples from that, and finally finished the paper in the early 80s. And I was getting clinical burnout, quite honestly, by that point. And I went over to his lab at Boston University, which is why our research is still at Boston University, and said something like, you know, I'm going nuts in the clinic. <laughs> I need need a break. Can I come hang out in your lab? I don't have any time. I don't have any money. What do you got? And I, to this day, I can't tell you. I just simply said, you don't have uh, some tissue from an, autist, from an autistic person, do you? I don't know. I must have been thinking about it or something. And he said, oh, yeah, we happen to have this one brain that's been was processed about five years ago. It's been sitting in the drawer. Nobody's been looking at it. Why don't you start with that? And that was the summer of 83. It didn't take very long to figure out that there was a problem and uh, kind of the rest is history. But it, it's, it's, uh, it was not my clinical interest. It was, I couldn't, frankly, couldn't even envision doing research. I thought that would really be horribly boring to sit in the microscope all the time. And it's turned out to be my part of my passion. So This disease, and especially the diagnosis of autism must have tremendous impact on both the family, their relatives, the siblings, and of course the child, him or herself. Are children aware of the fact that they have autism, that they're different? What does the child realize, both the child with autism and certainly and the child with Asperger's? Particularly when the kids are little, I don't think that they see themselves as being different. They're, they're more involved in what's going on in their immediate environment. And, you know, it's the parent who's concerned that he doesn't have play dates and he doesn't have friends and it's hard for me or it's hard for us to go and, and have family gatherings because he has a meltdown at Thanksgiving time. It really impacts really the parents and the other children, frankly, the siblings, uh, at least initially, much more, I think, than it does the child, him or herself. I think as 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 they enter middle school, this is my biggest area of concern is the middle school child. I think middle school is everybody's, even if you're a typically developing child, it's probably everybody's worst nightmare. Uh, And it certainly is very tough for a child who doesn't pick up on social cues, 
who doesn't get the idioms, doesn't get the kind of lingo that typical medical schools have, doesn't get that everybody wants to wear the same jeans and kind of fit in because they don't fit in. And they, many of them, particularly the Asperger's children that you alluded to, the high-functioning autistic kids, know they don't fit in. They know they don't fit in. And they want to have friends. They don't know how to have friends. One of the things that we push for very, very early is to teach social skills. Now, I don't care if you teach anything else, but you know we need to teach social skills right out of the box. Uh, because if if we haven't taught them some kind of way to relate to other children by the time they hit sixth and seventh grade, we're we're not doing them any favors. It's really a very tough tough situation. And frankly, this is a, a point where I really personally like to pull the kids out into a smaller, specialized program. We have, for example, here in Boston, several small schools that were really designed for children with language-based learning disabilities. And some of those have taken these higher-functioning students, the Asperger's children and the high-functioning autistic children, and incorporated them into those programs where the classes have four students to a teacher, where there's a great deal of emphasis on respect, differences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I've seen children who walked into those schools looking just absolutely horrible, depressed, unhappy, slashing out because they're unhappy. And six months later, they're on the student council. They've got friends. They're playing soccer, blah, blah, blah. And it's like somebody has turned on a switch. And I don't, you know, we haven't cured them. But, you know, this is, you know, there's this idea that we want to do the least restrictive environment, and by which I think that means that we want them all to go to public school and be like everybody else. Well, frankly, having a one-to-one aid and going to a specialized class in a public school is not not the least restrictive environment for that child. Going to a smaller school where he is he or she is part of the group, can be elected to the student council, can do some of these other things that typical kids do, for that particular child, in my estimation, that's the least restrictive environment. He's not walking around with an aide. How many teenagers do you know that want to walk around with a one-to-one aid all the time, trailing them wherever they go? I mean, they, they don't want that. So I, you know, it's if, if public schools can kind of step up to the plate and figure out some way to really do this, it'll be great. But I think middle school is really troublesome. By the time the kids get to high school, it can still be troublesome. But by that time, their peers, their typical peers, have kind of mellowed a little bit and seem to be a little bit more accepting of differences. So there are times where high schools can work out pretty well. But I think middle schools are really tough. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Bauman. We are discussing the psychosocial impact of autism and autism spectrum disorders. We've been speaking about the impact on the child and programs to help the child adjust. What about the family, the parents? They must be faced with a lot of guilt and perhaps even embarrassment. How do you work with the families? Have there been any successes there? Uh, that's a really good question. And, you know, and I think in a large part, there have probably been very few studies that really have looked at, at parents and impacts on parents. Uh, many of them find support groups to belong to. Sometimes that works out. Sometimes Particularly if they have a high-functioning child, they don't want to go to the sport group and hear all the negative things that somebody else is telling about their child. I think it's parent support groups are very useful, at least at the beginning, to get parents um, on meeting other parents who are in the same boat, uh, getting res- information about resources in their community, hearing about school systems, how do you negotiate the, negotiate the school systems, and so forth. It's really sort of a, a really steep learning curve that a parent has to learn about. And there's a lot of information on the Internet now, which is both good and bad, quite honestly. I think how do you filter out 
what's really valuable information and what may be less valuable for you. And I think that is a real challenge. It's a huge challenge. In terms of socially relatedness, I think you know many of our families do have supportive family members. Some of them don't. Some of them have you know grandparents who deny there's anything wrong with the child. I think it puts a tremendous stress on a couple. So I think the divorce rate, frankly, and unhappily, is can be high. I think that being able to go out and and go to a movie isn't always possible. How do you find a babysitter? Not always possible. But it's it's interesting that a lot of them figure it out, and it's certainly not the life they intended to live. Uh, they worry a lot about their typically developing children uh, and what happens to those kids. There are now more and more people who are doing sibling groups so that the siblings have a chance to come and, and talk about the difficulties of, of being the sibling of an autistic child. Some parents seem to pull this off well, so we have a number of siblings who have written books about what it's like to grow up with Jimmy or Johnny, and some of those are wonderful books, and they're wonderful books for other siblings uh, to read. So I, I, I wish I had a, a solid answer. I think each family finds their own way, and, and unfortunately I don't think there's any, probably like the kids themselves, this isn't a one-size-fits-all, and, and each one has to kind of figure it out for themselves. I wish we were more helpful. I wish we could be more helpful. But I think, you know, the medical profession can go a very long way of supporting families. And I think that, quite honestly, not to tout my own program, but I think that probably the biggest compliment I ever got about the program that we run if some external person came through for a visit and made the comment that the parents in our waiting room seemed much less fragile and they looked calmer and more together than they'd ever seen in anybody else's waiting room. And I, I consider that a real compliment. I think they know that we're there for them. If uh, there's something that comes up, we're really kind of their medical home, quite honestly. We're not a primary care facility, but we, you know, if somebody calls at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, we're there. And uh, I think that helps a lot. They're, they're not alone. The medical home is a very hot topic, and now we're being inundated with retail medicine. Doctor in every Walgreens or the old doc in the box. How is that going to impact both diagnosis as well as treatment of chronic problems such as autism? I'm not sure that having going to Walgreens and seeing somebody, unless you've got you know an acute care problem and you can't get in to see your primary doctor, really is going to be the answer. I think these these families really need a connectedness. They need a, a continuity. I mean, it's not like here's your diagnosis see you later kind of thing. We need to plug in the services and the interventions. We need to know whether what we've suggested is working. So we need to see that child in three to six months. And, I, you know, if it's not working, then we need to tighten, uh, tweak it a little bit or make it work or try something else or whatever. So it's not like just here's your diagnosis, have a nice life. It's really got to be ongoing care uh, over time. And what the child needs this year is not what he's going to need next year. And if you don't have a long-term perspective on where this child and family has come from, it's very hard to just pull something out of your hat and say, well, you know, here's here's the thing I just took out of my cookbook. What would you like the primary care doctor to do to help you? I, th- I think the ones that are really helping us a lot are the ones who are very good at, at listening to families, picking up on the diagnosis or the potential diagnosis early on, not blowing them off when they come in, parents come in with a complaint. So, for example, it's, it's not to take off on another topic, but there's a um, a growing awareness, at least here in our area, that some of the children that present with aggressive behaviors or self-injurious behaviors, that's not really part of their autism. What it's saying is you've got a nonverbal child who hurts, and he or she can't say, you know, my stomach hurts, my head hurts, my ears hurt. And they don't localize pain well, so they may be hitting their head when, in fact, their tummy is, is hurting because they don't have any other way to express that. And I think that, you know, trying to get primary care physicians to be aware that, you know, some of these behaviors 
probably, or in many cases, may not be, quote, simply the child's autism. This kid's probably trying to tell you something, and you really need to look in his ears, and you need to really be sure he doesn't have a bladder infection or any of the other kinds of things that typically developing kids have. These are kids first, and they happen to have autism, but you need to treat them the same way you treat anybody else. What frustrates you? What makes you want to just stand up and scream? The reluctance of school systems to do the job they need to do, even though, uh, and this is saying, not saying they're all like this, but even though... The, the cost-benefit, not only in terms of the child's outlook, but also down the line for society, really is in their ballpark. And they were not asking them to do anything they can't. They just won't. That drives me totally over the wall. The other thing that frustrates me, I think, is the, the research dollars um, that, that get promised but don't get delivered. I think that also drives me nuts. And then there's a, there's a certain politics to this whole thing that drives me nuts, too. I want to thank Dr. Margaret Bauman, who has been our guest. And we have been discussing the autism spectrum disorders. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Good day and good health.